If you have a Bible or if you can find a Bible under the chair in front of you, uh, you'll be helped, I think, to open to Genesis chapter 32. Uh, Our plan this morning is to go through Genesis 32 into the first 17 verses of Genesis chapter 33. If you're a visitor with us this morning, we've been in the book of Genesis for some time now. And uh, we're taking pretty big chunks uh, most Sundays, so I think you'll be helped to have a, a Bible open I won't read uh, every word uh, in the passage, but I will refer uh, back to the passage quite a bit, and so you'll be helped, I think, to have a Bible open in front of you. When we left Jacob and his family last week, you remember they had fled from Laban's territory. Laban was Jacob's uncle. They're headed back to their family homeland, to the land of Canaan. And remember throughout Genesis, we've seen really ever since the introduction of Abraham back around chapter 12, it's, it's key to read the events that we consider in the book of Genesis in light of the promise that God made to Abraham, uh, to Jacob's grandfather. Uh, God made a covenant with him, and he promised to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation. He promised to give them the land of Canaan as a possession And he promised to bless them, and actually to bless the entire world through them. And so everything we've seen so far about Jacob's life, we have to understand in light of those blessings, those promises that God has made. We've seen that that Jacob has been chosen, rather than his older twin brother Esau, uh, to be the one through whom this promise to Abraham would be fulfilled. And so now in our passage for this morning, we see Jacob having left Laban's uh, land, returning to the land of Canaan, returning to this land of promise. But there is one massive obstacle looming on the horizon as Jacob goes home, and that is Esau. Remember the whole reason that Jacob fled to Laban's country in the first place was because his older brother wanted to kill him. And there was honestly no doubt about who would win the fight between these two. Esau was bigger and stronger. He was a fighter. He was a hunter. Jacob, as we've seen, has made his way in the world by his wits and his guile. So when Jacob goes home after 20 years in a sort of exile, he has to figure out some way to avoid getting his whole family wiped off the map by this powerful man who hates him. And what we're going to see is that If you had to summarize Jacob's mood as he anticipates this encounter with his older brother, if you have to sort of summarize what his emotional state is here in this passage, it would be he's afraid. In the ESV, they provide a sort of chapter heading or a heading for this section, and it's Jacob fears Esau, and that's about right. Jacob is afraid. He's afraid of Esau. He's afraid for himself. He's afraid for his family. And so in sort of typical Jacob fashion, he responds in what we'd have to call a mixed fashion. He he does some good things. He trusts the Lord in some ways. And he does some shady things, like taking matters into his own hands. And so what I want to do is walk through Jacob's interaction with Esau and see what it is, uh, what there is for us to learn from it. Uh, If you're taking notes, that'll be the first thing we look at. Jacob meets Esau. Uh, The second thing we'll look at is what happens right before that, the the night before that meeting, and that is Jacob meets God. 
So Jacob meets Esau and Jacob meets God. So first, let's begin by looking at his meeting with Esau. So Jacob's on his way to his homeland. He's anticipating this reunion with his brother. But before anything actually happens, we get this sort of enigmatic bit of information there in verses 1 and 2. It says there, Jacob went on his way, so leaving Laban, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now that is an incredibly brief description, and it leaves us wanting more information. Wait, what? Angels? How many angels? What did they look like? Did they say anything? What were they doing there? Right, we don't get any of that information, but the, the language that Moses uses here gives us, I think, some ideas and some points of connection. There's only one other place in the Old Testament where we see angels described using the two Hebrew words that are used here at the beginning of chapter 32. The only other place in the, in the Old Testament we see those two Hebrew words used to describe angels are back in chapter 28, where if you remember, Jacob sees a dream in which angels of the Lord, this same phrase, are ascending and descending on a flight of stairs that connects heaven and earth. And Jacob's response really also reminds you of chapter 28. In chapter 28, he declared that this was God's house, and he named the place Bethel. Here he says, this is God's camp, and he names the place Mahanaim, which means two camps. It seems like Jacob is getting a bit of a theology lesson before this big encounter with Esau, this climactic moment in his life. He had encountered the God of his father and the God of his grandfather at Bethel, at God's house. He learned there that God was present in that place, even though he hadn't known it. You see that in chapter 28, verse 16. And there at Bethel, if you remember, the Lord made a promise to Jacob. So as he's heading out into Laban's country, the Lord says this to him in Genesis 28, 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. So it seems that this encounter with angels here in chapter 32 is meant to remind Jacob of that promise and to call to his attention just how faithful the Lord had been to it. God was there at Bethel, and he promised he wouldn't leave him. And so now here at Mahanaim, God is showing him that he's still there, the difference between a house and a camp, right? Bethel is God's house. A house is a sort of permanent dwelling place. A camp is a sort of mobile dwelling place. And so what Jacob is coming to realize here is that this is God's camp. This is God's mobile presence, if you will. God is, God's there at Bethel, but he's also here on the move with me. God is showing him that his angels are with him. His ministers are there to help him. As he goes to encounter this mighty and fearsome opponent, Esau, he's not going alone. At Bethel, God had promised to bring Jacob back to the land. And however it might have seemed that Jacob was more likely to die by the hand of his brother before that happened, here he was, and God was still with him. God's promises were never in doubt. And so what Jacob gets and what we get through this story is a reminder that there is, in fact, a whole layer of reality that's not ordinarily visible to us. 
Right here, Jacob feels vulnerable and outnumbered. But God sent angels to meet him and to show him that he had help that he could not see with his eyes. Help that, in fact, was always with him. But help that he could only sort of access, if you will, through faith. This story reminds me a bit of the story that we read in 2 Kings chapter 6. These are events that took many centuries, took place many centuries after the events in our passage for this morning. But we read there in 2 Kings 6 about a time when the king of Syria brought his army out in pursuit of the prophet Elisha. He was sick of Elisha. Elisha kept frustrating his plans. The Lord was giving Elisha information about the king's plans. And so the king of Syria decides, okay, it's time to get this guy. They surround Elisha and his servant. They lay siege to the place where they're staying. And Elisha's servant is understandably freaked out. He looks out and he sees the king of Syria and his armies and thinks, we have no hope. But listen to what we see there. Elisha says to him, he said, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold the mountains, I'm sorry, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Right, the servant couldn't see that God's help was all around him. The enemies of God's people only appeared to have the upper hand. You might also remember the words of the Lord Jesus when the guards came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus told them there that if he wanted to, he could call down thousands of angels to defend him. Right? Jesus was making it clear that he wasn't going with these guards because he had been overwhelmed by a superior force. He's, he's letting them know, I'm going with you because this serves my larger purpose. Jesus says there are spiritual forces. There are, there's help available that you can't see with your eyes. Now, the problem for us is that we live in a day and age that encourages us towards materialism. And I mean that word in the, the philosophical sense. I, I don't mean that we're materialists in the sense of being acquisitive and valuing our possessions too much, though we may be that as well. Rather, what I mean is that we tend to think that, that the best explanation for everything is the explanation that we can, that we can see, that we can touch, that we can measure. Uh, we live as if the, the realest things are the things that we can quantify, things that can be seen with the naked eye. That, that growth in, in, towards materialism has really been underway for the last 500 years in the Western world. And for most people living in Northern Virginia in 2021, it's simply the air we breathe. We assume that the explanation to everything is physical, that our emotions can be explained by brain chemistry, that, that things that we can't see can't be really known or real. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls it the buffered self, that we've, we've created a world where we, we feel self-contained, that, that there's nothing outside of us that can influence us. It's only what we, what we can see and feel and know uh, that we really have to worry about. The Bible shows us that we live in a reality that's actually far deeper than that. That while God does reveal himself through the things that he's made, through things we can see and touch and quantify, that we can know truth 
through the material world, but there is also a realm that can only be accessed through hearing the promises of God with faith. Right? God promises to be with Jacob. But under normal circumstances, for 20 years, Jacob can't see that with his eyes. And so he's being called upon to walk by faith. Yes, God condescends to show him kindly here in chapter 32 to, to reassure him that he's present with him. But, but in a sense, it's the exception that proves the rule. It's so remarkable because this isn't the way the Lord normally interacts with us. We naturally want to see before we believe. But friends, that's just not how it works in this era of human history. The Apostle Paul says faith comes through hearing. Right? In the Garden of Eden, before sin entered the world, human beings could see God. In the new heavens and the new earth, that future day when sin will be done away with and we'll live with God forever, we're told we will see him. But that's not where we are right now. We're not in the garden. We're not in the new heavens and new earth. And so, as the Puritans used to say, we live in the age not of the eye, but of the ear. We don't see God. We hear God speak to us through his word. We access information about God and the world that he's made by hearing his promises. And friends, that's why we devote so much of our time together on Sunday mornings to reading and preaching and hearing the Bible. Because we don't expect that what we're going to get is, is a sort of revelation of angels around us. Instead, our normal experience of being sure of God's presence with us and his blessing is by hearing him promise it to us and then responding in faith. So to bring it back to this passage, we don't need and we shouldn't expect an encounter like the one Jacob has here. It's enough for us to read about it. To see that God makes the same and frankly even better promises to us as followers of Christ than the ones that he made to Jacob at Bethel. We can be certain of God's help. We can be certain of God's presence with us even when we can't see it with our eyes. We're never left to save ourselves or to face our enemies on our own. Now Jacob moves on from this brief interaction and he immediately goes to what he knows best, scheming, working the angles. There in verse 3, he sends messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau. That the word in Hebrew for angel is just the word messenger. So there's a bit of a play on words. There's actually tons of plays on words going all throughout this passage. Uh, I won't bore you with them since uh, I assume you're not a Hebrew nerd. But... Uh, the word for angel in Hebrew is the same word for messenger. So, so Jacob sees messengers from God, and the first thing he does is he sends out messengers to Esau. The goal, as we see in verses 4 and 5, is, is to connect with Esau, to make it clear that Jacob is interested in finding favor with his brother. There in verse 6, we see the messengers return in verses 6 to 8. It says, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that's left will escape. So these messengers come back and they tell, es they tell Jacob that Esau's coming for him. 
And they don't say whether he's angry or not, but Jacob clearly thinks that he is. There in verse 7, he's greatly afraid and distressed. So even though he had seen the angels of God, the idea of Esau coming with 400 men was terrifying. So he divides his family and his possessions up into two camps. Again, a sort of a nod to the appearance of the angels at the place he calls Mahanaim, two camps. He divides his, it's like he gets an idea. He sees messengers and he's like, I'll send messengers. He calls this place two camps and he's like, that gives me an idea. I'm going to split our people up into two camps. And he thinks if Esau attacks one camp, at least he'll be left with half his family, half his possessions. There in verses 13 to 21, I won't read it, but he basically sends wave after wave of expensive gifts to his brothers. It's an incredible amount of wealth. Seems that he's hoping to placate uh, Esau, hoping to sort of prepare him for Jacob's coming into his presence. And so that seems to be Jacob's plan. That's his hope. He's a schemer. And so he's almost trying to sort of backfoot his brother, catch him off guard, assault him with gifts, sort of try to, try to get in first, make arrangements to mitigate his losses in case Esau comes after him. But there is one other thing that Jacob does here. He does one thing besides scheme and plan. There in verse 9, he, we read that he responded to the news of Esau's impending arrival by praying. We read there in chapter 32, in verses 9 to 12. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, brothers and sisters, I think this is a really good example for us to think about. Jacob is in a frightening situation. He's afraid for his family. He's worried about his children. He's concerned that he's going to lose everything that he cares about, his wealth, his family, even his life. And friends, there may, there may be ways that we can understand what it's like to be in a similar spot. I hope you don't have an estranged brother who's coming to kill you. But if you have kids you probably know what it is like to have some anxiety about their well-being. Maybe you look at the world that they're growing up in and you fear the influence that it will have over them. Maybe you're worried about your work, whether you can have job security in a workplace that's more and more hostile to people who hold Christian beliefs. Perhaps the pandemic and all that we've been through over the past 16 months or so has left you with a a residual posture of anxiety about your health. Well, if that's you, look at the three things that Jacob does here. He acknowledges his fear. There in verse 11, he says, I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Second, Jacob comes to God on the basis of his grace. Jacob appears to have sort of 
remarkable and frankly unexpected clarity about the fact that there's nothing in him that would compel God to listen. There in verse 10, he acknowledges his unworthiness. He acknowledges the Lord's incredible kindness, his steadfast love to him up to this point. And there in verse 12, he holds up God's own promise as the the basis, the foundation for his request. He doesn't locate the ground of his coming to the Lord in himself. He doesn't say, look at all that I've done for you. Look look at who I am. Look how good I am. Look how much better I am than Laban. No, he simply says, Lord, you've promised. You've said that you were going to bless me and do good to me. Jacob's prayer is a, a plea for grace, for favor that he doesn't deserve. This is the foundational posture for any interaction that we might have with God. It begins with recognizing that we don't have any claims on him in and of ourselves. that we're in need of his grace and mercy, that we come before him on the basis of his self-revelation, his, uh, his promises to us, the work that he's done for us in Christ. The third thing that Jacob does is he asks for help with the thing that's sparking fear in him. He acknowledges his fear. He comes to God on the basis of his grace and he asks for help there in verse 11. He says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. It's a fine request, simple and clear. He doesn't have to be flowery. He doesn't have to be overly spiritualized. He doesn't have to speak in the King James Version if there had been such a thing back then. He simply says, I don't want Esau to kill me. Please help. Please deliver me. Friends, this is real progress for Jacob. He's not been a spiritually minded person up to this point. And brothers and sisters, I think we're invited to take that same approach when we consider the things in the world that might tempt us to fear. When we are aware of the threats around us and the fact that they seem to vastly outstrip our ability to respond to them. We can acknowledge our fear to the Lord. We can go to him on the basis of his grace shown to us much more clearly in Christ than even Jacob would have understood. And we can ask him for help. It's only then that we should make plans. It's only then that we execute strategies. We begin by going to the Lord. There at the beginning of chapter 33, we see the long-dreaded showdown finally arrives. Uh, We read there, starting in verse 1, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went uh, went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So Jacob goes out to meet Esau and his 400 men with his family in tow behind him. Now this is Jacob, so he can't seem to do anything without encouraging unnecessary family drama. So he basically decides it'd be a great idea to line them up in ascending order of his affection, right? With Rachel and Joseph last, presumably the safest place if Esau does indeed attack. That's definitely going to bear some bad fruit in the future, but that's a story for a different sermon. We see Jacob bow down before Esau, and the drama must have been incredibly thick. I mean, think of what Jacob had done to him. 
Think of what Jacob deserved. It's been 20 years. It seemed very likely that Esau's anger had only increased in the meantime. This is what happens next, starting there in verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I meet? that I met. Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you've accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. So the threat is averted. Esau's anger has dissipated over the decades. God has preserved Jacob. The danger that seemed poised to derail God's promise has been dealt with. There in verses 12 to 17 of chapter 33, we see that Esau and Jacob talk about what it is they should do next. After some back and forth, they agree Esau will go ahead. Jacob will come along at a slower pace for the sake of the, the young animals and the children. And the passage ends with a bit of surprise, though. In verse 17, Jacob settles, we read, in Succoth instead of going on with Esau to Seir as he had intended or in, as he'd indicated. So he tells Esau, you go ahead, I'll meet you there. But all we read is that he actually went to a different place and settled there. We're not told why. Uh, but we'll see in next week's passage, Lord willing, that, that Jacob did seem intent on moving on. But the big takeaway here is that God has richly blessed Jacob, despite the fact that he didn't deserve it. Twenty years ago, he had left the area penniless, alone, with a target on his back. And now we see that he's returning with incredible wealth, with a massive family. And even the target is off his back now. Esau, that one insurmountable obstacle, has been conclusively dealt with. And we've seen that Jacob doesn't deserve this at all. Right? His approach to marriage and parenting is sketchy at best. His approach to animal husbandry was, as we saw last week, superstitious at best. But the truth is he is the object of God's love and favor. Jacob is the one God chose to be his own. And so he's richly blessed. There in verse 11, we see Jacob is able to say that all of this blessing of God in his life, he's able to say that God has dealt graciously with me. Right? However dicey the situation seemed, no matter how far-fetched it would seem that Jacob would ever be at this point one day, God was incredibly faithful to the promise that he made to Abraham, that he made to Isaac, and that he made to Jacob. So in the same way, Christian, you can be sure that God is at work in the situations in your life, in the threats that you face, in the struggles that you endure, even the, the self-inflicted troubles that plague you. And again, not because you're so amazing, 
Not because God is really impressed by you and obsessed with making sure that you get what you want, right? That's the, that's the prosperity gospel. We'll leave that to the televangelists on TV. No, this blessing comes to us because God has set his love on us in Christ. Because Jesus took on himself everything that provokes God's holy wrath and anger and justice. Because God is intimately involved in our lives by the presence of his spirit. And so we know that he never wants anything for us that would ultimately harm us. That as we read earlier in our service from Romans chapter 8, verse 28, he will bring everything to serve our blessing in the end. Friends, that's why we have confidence to go to the Lord in prayer like Jacob did. Because we know he will only ever do good to us. Those blessings that God gives so freely to his children, they come quite apart from our goodness or merit. We don't have to be good enough to earn them. But we do see that part of God's love, one of the ways that we experience his blessing is that he doesn't leave us the way that we are. One of the ways that God blesses us is by transforming us. And that's what we see in the rest of our passage for this morning, in the, the second thing that we want to see, where Jacob meets God. You look there in verse 32, you may have noticed we skipped over what might be one of the, the most well-known passages in the book of Genesis. Here we see an all-night wrestling match that changes Jacob's life. It takes place on the night before his showdown with Esau. Jacob, as we've seen, is consumed by fear and worry for his family. And so we read, starting there in verse 22 of chapter 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Uh, some commentators say that's an indication of his, his anxiety and his fear. It was a fast-moving stream. To cross it at night showed that he was uh, preoccupied and concerned. He took them, sent them across the stream and everything else that they had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up on him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. So the scene is set for us masterfully. We read there that Jacob is alone, utterly alone, again. He sends his family, all of his possessions across the stream ahead of him. And it seems like he's right back where he started. Back in the same condition at which he had arrived in chapter 28 at Bethel. Completely alone. He's in the same condition, but the question that's going to be answered is, is he the same man? 
Has this 20 years prepared him in any way for life in Canaan? Is he ready for his role in God's plan to bless the world through him? And just like at Bethel, Jacob is visited in the night. Quite abruptly, we're told that a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day, as if that's totally normal, the kind of thing that happens to you all the time. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And we're not given answers to a lot of the questions that we might have. Uh, This wrestling partner is called a man there in verse 24. Then in verse 28, it seems that Jacob has striven with God. He's He's given a new name and he said, because you've striven with God. Verse 30, Jacob is convinced that he had seen God and was feeling grateful that he was still alive to tell the tale. In Hosea chapter 12, Uh, Many centuries later, the prophet reflects on these events, and he says that Jacob strove with God by striving with an angel here. So that's even more information. What's clear is that this man is some kind of heavenly visitor in the form of of a, a human being, that he represents the power and the presence of God in such a way in a way that's so significant and so real that Jacob can can be said to have wrestled or to strive with God himself. That Jacob feels like he's seen God's face in some way. And so as we conclude, let let me just note five things that I think we ought to take away from this strange encounter where Jacob wrestles, where he strives with the Lord. First, I think it's important to notice the condescension of God. Uh, We need to figure this out at the beginning, otherwise we'll get things twisted. This is not a fair fight. When it says there in verse 25 that the man didn't prevail against Jacob, we shouldn't understand that to be because he couldn't prevail. It's not because Jacob was such a tenacious and fearsome opponent. Remember, Jacob is afraid of his older brother. Jacob is the lover, not the fighter in the family. Right? In fact, it becomes clear in the middle of verse 25 that this visitor has had the power all along to cripple Jacob if he wanted to. It's almost like he's been patiently letting Jacob wear himself out with all of his striving. So in these events, we see God in love coming to Jacob for his own benefit. God doesn't need anything from this encounter. He's not in any way controlled or compelled by Jacob to do anything. This is simply God's way of stooping to bless this lost, troubled soul. Second, we see the transformation of Jacob. In many ways, this is the the moment we've been waiting for. Up until this point, Jacob's relationship with the Lord has been distant, if existent at all. He prays there in in, uh, verse 9, as we saw earlier. That's good. But did you notice how he referred to the Lord? The God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac. Now, there's a way that that could be an encouraging way to address the Lord, acknowledging the sort of continuity of God's kindness through his family line. But it could also be a way of expressing a sort of distance. You're my grandfather's God and you're my... Father's God, but what sort of seems to be absent is, is he Jacob's God? But here, after this wrestling, Jacob is renamed. There in verse 26, he demands a blessing of his visitor. In verse 27, the visitor demands his name. 
This isn't because he's not sure who he's talking to. Rather, this is a, a sort of sign of submission. It's kind of an ancient way of crying uncle. Notice that Jacob asks the visitor for his name, and he doesn't give it to him. The visitor shows his authority by renaming him. He says, you're no longer Jacob. You're no longer the heel grabber. Now you're to be known as Israel, the one who strives with God and man. You're the, you're the fighter. You're the wrestler. And what we see from that point forward is that Jacob will be a different man. He's going to have to deal with the fact that almost all of his sons have seemed to sort of learned his ways from him. So having nine deceitful and impulsive sons is going to be a sort of massive heartache and headache. But we'll see next week, Lord willing, in chapter 35, that Jacob seems to have been genuinely converted. And so he puts away the worship of other gods. He goes out into the world in the power and protection of his Lord. Even his posture towards Esau in chapter 33 that we thought about earlier, when he does meet with him after these events, after this wrestling, it seems different. He seems like he's been cured of his fear and anxiety in some ways. He seems more stable and mature. Jacob demands a blessing. And that blessing comes to him, not in the form of making him rich. He was already rich. Not in the form of giving him everything that he wanted. In many ways, he already had that. It didn't make him powerful or successful or good-looking. But the blessing that he received from the Lord was transformation. So I wonder, friend, what, what blessing you would seek from God. What you would want after a night of striving and contending. Well, oftentimes, the greatest gift that God gives to his people is to change them to teach them to trust him more. Third thing we see is that transformation is painful. Jacob gets a blessing. He gets a new name that represents a new identity. He gets a new relationship with God, a new posture towards life. And he also gets a dislocated hip for his trouble. He gets a limp that most likely stayed with him for the remainder of his life as a reminder it was an injury that was commemorated even in Israel's dietary customs, we read there in verse 32. And I think it's a helpful picture of what this blessing of transformation often looks like in the lives of God's people. Change usually involves a kind of injury that feels like death. Change, transformation, involves the, the breaking of the bones of our personality the breaking of the bones of our self-understanding, our self-reliance, our self-confidence. Sometimes this happens dramatically when someone first comes to Christ. There is this holy shattering that takes place in your life. You can feel God putting you back together in a recognizable but significantly different shape. You see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. You see it in the life of the Apostle Peter. You see it in the lives of saints throughout the ages. Augustine, Luther, Wesley. Think in our day of someone like Elizabeth Elliot. People who had to go through a, a traumatic event, who had to go through some, some reshaping, some breaking of their lives so that they could be useful in God's service. I know in my own life, as I was contemplating this this week, I feel like this has happened to me several times since I've become a Christian. 
Times when God, through trial or failure on my part, through seasons of depression or temptation or struggle, where it's felt like God has broken me. And I think as I look back on my life, I walk with a bit of a, a limp from those experiences. My guess is that if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, you've experienced something of this divine dislocation, this excruciating healing. So perhaps we can learn to be thankful for those experiences, even though we wouldn't choose to walk through them. Perhaps we can learn to even love the scars and the limp that's left behind, knowing that those wounds were God's gracious way of blessing us by changing us. Fourth, I think in this wrestling, we see something of a pattern for believers. Now, we have to be careful before we grab onto a story in the Old Testament and immediately just write our names over the names of the main character, right? You're not David fighting Goliath. And so we want to be careful before we say, all right, now you're Jacob wrestling with God. But we do, I think, have warrant for seeing in this story a picture and a pattern of what tenacious faith looks like, to see what it looks like to, to interact with God with patience and tenacity. Jacob wrestled with God, and he wouldn't let go until he got a blessing. He wrestled all night, and it, he seemed like he was willing to, to go as long as it took. And so I want to point you to something that the prophet Hosea wrote. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read you the whole thing. We actually looked at some of it last week. But Hosea is writing many centuries after the events that took place in Genesis. And he's writing to God's people as they are in exile. They had been ejected from the promised land because of their repeated sin. And they were longing to be restored. And Hosea looks back at this story and he sees hope for them. He sees a pattern for them in the wrestling of Jacob, in Jacob exiled in Laban's country like they had been, and then brought back to the land of Canaan. So in chapter 12, Hosea reminds them of their forefathers wrestling with God at Peniel in verse 4. And then he applies that wrestling to their lives in verse 6. Let me read that for you, Hosea 12, 6. So Hosea, writing to the people of God, says, So you... By the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. See, Hosea tells the people of God that they need to hold fast. Right? They need to be graspers like Jacob was a grabber of heels. But he says they should hold on to justice and love. Just like Jacob endured all night wrestling with the angel, Hosea says they should wait continually for God to restore them. So brothers and sisters, I think those are our marching orders as well. John Calvin, the reformer, wrote this, applying the life or the events here at Peniel to the believer's struggle, particularly with trials and temptations in our lives. This is a bit long, but I hope it's helpful to you. Calvin writes, whenever we are tempted... Our business is truly with him, that is with the Lord. Not only because we fight under his auspices, but because he, as an antagonist, descends into the arena to try our strength. 
This, though at first sight it seems absurd, experience and reason teaches us to be true. For as all prosperity flows from his goodness, so adversity is either the rod with which he corrects our sins or the test of our faith and patience. And since there is no kind of temptation by which God does not try his faithful people, the similitude is very suitable, which represents him as coming hand to hand to combat with them. Therefore, what was once exhibited under the visible form to our father Jacob is daily fulfilled in the individual members of the church. You see what he's saying? What, what once happened to Jacob happens to you and me now every day. Namely, that in their temptations, it is necessary for them to wrestle with God. Skipping down a bit, he says, but the question now occurs, who is able to stand against an antagonist at whose breath alone all flesh perishes and vanishes away, at whose look the mountains melt, at whose word or beck the whole world is shaken to pieces, and therefore to attempt the least contest with him would be insane temerity. Basically, who's going to fight against God? How can we be called to wrestle against one like the Lord. He continues, but it is easy to untie the knot. For we do not fight against him except by his own power and with his own weapons. For he, having challenged us to this contest, at the same time furnishes us with means of resistance so that he both fights against us and for us. In short, Such is his apportioning of this conflict, that while he assails us with one hand, he defends us with the other. Yea, insomuch as he supplies us with more strength to resist than he employs in opposing us, we may truly and properly say that he fights against us with his left hand and for us with his right hand. For while he lightly opposes us, he supplies invincible strength whereby we overcome. Christian, don't despair when you're called upon to wrestle, when you're called upon to struggle through trials and temptations and doubts and fears. Don't shrink away from the conflict and difficulty through which you will be changed. We can be sure that God will supply the strength that he requires, that he'll supply the strength we need to wrestle with the challenges that he has ordained for our blessing and our good and our transformation. Fifth and finally, I think in this wrestling we see something of the sacrificial, suffering love of the Lord Jesus. I can't help but read about Jacob, utterly alone, wrestling with the Lord all night. I can't help but read that and and think of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There, Jesus tenaciously pled with the Father to let the cup of suffering pass each time resolving to do the Father's will, even to the point of being shattered for us on the cross. Jesus, of course, is the far greater Israel. His bones were put out of joint, as Psalm 22 reminds us, not because there was something in him that needed to be fixed, but because there's something in us that needs to be fixed. Jesus wrestled with God not so that he could receive a blessing, but so that you and I could be blessed through his suffering, his death and resurrection. 
So brothers and sisters, we come now to the Lord's table and we come with great love and confidence in our God. Seeing that he's loved us like this, we can patiently wait and we can struggle and we can trust. And so let's pray and then let's go to the table together. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your great love that you've shown to us over and over again. Jacob declared your steadfast love to him, but he had only seen a tiny bit. He had only tasted the very first course. Those of us who have feasted on the banquet of your love in Christ, we truly rejoice in your steadfast love. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you endured for us, that you were put out of joint for us, that you suffered so that we might be blessed. Holy Spirit, would you come and give us endurance in trial? Would you give us patience to wrestle? Would you help us to not give up? And Spirit, would you bless us and transform us so that we might be more like Christ? And it's in his name we pray. Amen.